This episode of the Bamboo Pastors Podcast has been brought to you by the Growth Center for Church and Mission. The Growth Center has established the Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader, a ministry ecosystem which brings together pastors, ministry leaders, and marketplace leaders who are finding creative ways to utilize their faith and their talents to bring the gospel to the cities and communities they live in. Check them out at thegrowthcenter.com. Welcome to the Bamboo Pastors Podcast, a podcast that explores the joys and challenges of being an English-speaking pastor in a Chinese church. I'm Jalen Chan, and I'm here with my co-host, John Mon. Hey, everyone. Together, we host the Bamboo Pastors Podcast. We're glad that you're here with us. Come on in and have a seat at the table. All right, Jalen, it's good to be back with you today recording the podcast, um, but how have you been? What have you been up to? Things have been going well here. Uh, so. It's uh, we're recording this at the beginning of March and it's warming up a lot in the Chicago area. And so all that snow that we had, it's melting. Uh, our little snow hill that we built for sledding is uh, is slowly decreasing. And so our kids are a little bit sad about that, but it's nice and warm. Uh, and by warm, I mean like 50 degrees. And so that's like a huge warm up for us. Heat wave. Yeah, heat wave for sure. Uh, so we actually got some tickets to go to Brookfield Zoo next week. And so we're excited to, to go check that out. There's a new polar bear, I think. So we're excited. I know the kids are excited to go see. Now, do the, the animals in the zoo, do they wear masks? And are they six feet apart? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I doubt it, John. Okay. <laughs> but anyways, we're excited about that and uh, excited about the, the nice weather. So how are you doing? Yeah, you know, uh, I'm doing well. It's It's been a busy week. I think it's a combination of, you know, we're about a month from Holy Week. And so we are beginning the planning process in earnest. But then also, I think the other thing that is increasing a little bit of the busyness is I'm actually heading back to uh, heading home for a few days coming up and I'm really excited for that, but I'm trying to get some things done so that I can have them finished before I head back to Chicago and uh, not have to worry about that while I'm taking a break and eating good food, seeing people I love and care about. I'm going to see you guys and see siblings and friends. So I'm really excited about that. I am a little bummed that you're saying that it's warming up because I really miss snow and (laughs) I know I don't miss it. Like I, I would not miss it if it was three months straight you know, right. or not seeing the sun for forever. But I do miss just the the delight of seeing a fresh snowfall. And so I'm I'm a little sad that I'm gonna miss that. But yeah, don't worry. I'm not I'm not praying for snow while I'm there. So <laughs> yeah. Please but don't. Otherwise it's been good. Here's what we'll do for you, John. Whatever snow we have left, I will have the kids save and make make and save a snowball. We'll put it in the freezer. When you get here, we'll have them all throw a snowball at you. Let's Perfect. set up like firing line style and you can enjoy the snow that way. So I love it. Okay. I'm in. <laughs> uh, we're excited about seeing you uh, next week. So, uh, but we're also excited about our guest. Uh, our guest today is DJ Chuang. He is a strategy consultant uh, currently working with the dot Bible registry. It's a new top level domain for all things Bible and uh, also working with visually linked Bible. He's worked with organizations like American Bible Society, Worship Leader Magazine, Leadership Network, and L Squared Foundation, developing leadership and legacy for Asian Americans. He also has his own podcast that he co-hosts called Erasing Shame. Go check that out. And he's authored a book called Multi-Asian.Church, A Future for Asian Americans in a Multi-Ethnic World. And John, I know both you and I got a chance to, to, to read that book and I uh, really enjoyed it. But DJ, thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us on this podcast today. 
Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here on the Bamboo Pastors podcast. Really commend the work that you're doing. We really appreciate even early on in the life of this podcast, you kind of gave us a little shout out and, you know, talked about us in one of your videos and that that got us a little bit uh, on the map. So we, were, we really appreciate that, that you helping us out that way. We were wondering if you could just very briefly share your ministry journey, your calling into ministry, kind of what are some of the stops along the way so we can get an idea of what you've been up to and and how God has used you as part of his kingdom work. Yeah, um, I'm age 54 now, so there's quite a bit of life experience that I've accumulated, probably more than the two of you combined in terms of age. I'm not sure how young you are. Close, but not in, not entirely. <laughs> yes. Well, I came to the U.S. house eight. Uh, grew up in a traditional Chinese American family in Winchester, Virginia, which is an hour outside of Washington, D.C. Um, so went to Virginia Tech for college and was active in the Chinese Bible study there and was baptized there. And as I worked as a computer engineer for a couple of years after that, uh, I was discipled and I felt a call to ministry because the verse Matthew 9.36 kept coming up that one summer back in 1990 that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And I took that as a signal that uh, many of my uh, Chinese and Asian American peers from college and others that I knew uh, wouldn't be reached by the traditional Chinese church. And so I, I was available and uh, I was eager to learn and find a way I could serve. So I took that as a call to ministry and I packed up my worldly belongings and drove down to Dallas, Texas, went to Dallas Theological Seminary for five years, got a THM, graduated on Saturday, married my wife on Sunday, and then we just uh, went into ministry uh, naively, but it's been a crowded growth curve. Served two years as a youth pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina in a traditional Chinese church and quickly realized that even though I grew up in a traditional Chinese family, I had no idea what it was to be in a Chinese church culture that was not in my history. And so, and not in my history and also not in my textbooks at seminary. And so I stuck it out for two years to uh, humbly learn, but um, took another opportunity to join a friend who was planting a multi-ethnic church plant that was largely Korean and served there for three years, had a transition out of that uh, when I uh, realized that I could be an okay pastor, but I think God uh, can use more of what he's given me in terms of my passions and interests um, rather than just my skills or dedication. And so I'm the oldest son of three boys, so it's easy for me to just do things out of duty and responsibility but I think God can use us even more if we're able to do things out of desire and gifting. And so the past 20 years, I've been bivocational in a lot of ways, working with nonprofits, worked in the private philanthropy world, uh, philanthropic uh, private foundation. Uh, that was the L Squared Foundation that was mentioned in the bio. I found myself to thrive, to be fruitful and uh, fulfilled by connecting churches, pastors, and resources through digital means and on the ground at church conferences. And so uh, now in 2021, it's quite amazing to see how all of that's converged because we are finally 
for me a little late, but finally living a digital lifestyle that, you know, we've had all these tools for at least a decade, but the church is finally caught up and realizing, okay, we've got to learn to connect with people online as well as offline. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I, I really appreciate that humility to recognize, you know, a few years into pastoral ministry, Hey, this isn't what necessarily God has called me to, but still having that sense of call to ministry and, and looking at that from a different way, you know, the, the gifts and the abilities that God has given you. Uh, and, you know, one of the ways that you do that is, is through writing this book. You wrote this book in 2016 called multi-Asian.church, uh, which you describe as a tr- strategic guide for ministry by Asian Americans for Asian Americans and non-Asians too in a multi-ethnic world. What was your motivation for writing this book? So the book uh, was a compilation of all the experience that I had through networking, having conversations with Asian American pastors, as well as non-Asian pastors. And I kind of have multi-track of interests. And so that was one signal to me that pastoring in a conventional local church, whether Asian or not Asian, wasn't the best fit because I had multiple interests. And so another interest um, that was being confirmed was connecting with multi-ethnic church leaders, which tends to be a mostly black and white conversation and context. But I was also beginning to see a pattern of next-gen Asian American pastors starting their own churches that were multi-ethnic, myself being in one during the 1997 to 2000 era. So we got to see our little church grow from 60 to 160 in about three years. And we met and exceeded a budget every year. So uh, that told me that if we have a compelling vision for a group of people, that it can be self-sustaining and that young adults can be supporting their own churches financially and voluntarily to reach their peers. And uh, something that Pastor Rick Warren, many uh, people have heard of him. I actually attend his church, Saddleback Church here in Orange County, California. Uh, He says it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. So multi-ethnic churches can reach people that ethnic churches cannot and vice versa. And so both are needed for uh, harvesting all the people that God wants to reach. And so in the book, I describe, I, I basically looked at the premise demographics are destiny. So churches are not here to serve itself. Churches are here to serve its community. And so if its community's demographic is changing, um, the church would be wise to consider, well, what would God have uh, them to do in in the next five or 10 or 20 years? And many places, uh, the demographics are shifting to be less white and more people of color. And then now uh, I've been tracking. So even though I'm not a statistic guy, I get known as I have a reputation for being this this statistic guy. And so I've seen uh, an exponential curve on page 55 of the book, if you want to check it out. It's actually on the website, so you can see that too. So you you don't have to buy the book to see the chart. But the curve almost looks exponential in terms of independent English-speaking Asian American-led churches Uh, growing from like 40 to 300 in about the span of 20 years. And it continues to grow. And so the book is a summary of the learnings I've had from there, describing some of the characteristics and some of the dreams that I think can help next-gen leaders serve their generation 
into the future. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the chapters of the book that I really found helpful or really enjoyed was when you talked about like the, some of the defining characteristics of um, different uh, types of churches that had um, particularly uh, of Asian heritage, right? And you used you actually had quite a few different systems to describe them. And I know for myself, one of the ones that I really connected with or resonated with me was the one where you used like um, different homes and uh, ways of living mm-hmm. together to describe mm-hmm. it. And I was like, oh, that that really gives me vocabulary for mm-hmm. for how to talk about it. Um, but one of the things that you one of the words that you use frequently throughout the book, in fact, you titled your book multi-asian.church was was a relatively new term for me. Um, so I was wondering if you could just define that term and maybe describe the type of church you're you're talking about yes. for our listeners and, and for people who are maybe not as familiar with that context. Yes. The uh, as we enter uh, ethnic and race conversations. Disclaimer is it's it's always nuanced and complicated. But the simple way to describe multi-Asian church, it's a portmanteau, which is like a word mashup. Multi-ethnic and Asian American smashed together hmm. is multi-Asian, which is to say these are English-speaking Asian American-led churches that are seeking to reach non-Asians also. And they tend to be younger. There's a few exceptions that are older, like older than me, but most of them are less than 20 years old um, and they're reaching the next generation. So I think of these churches as those that are designed to reach my son and his peers. I have a son who's 24 years old, just finished college. And uh, there's something about owning your own faith that's different than being an intergenerational church. So in one sense, there's pros and cons. But in another sense, it's also strategic for the sake of evangelism and to help people grow in their faith. Yeah, and I think that's important to recognize that there are certainly Asian American pastors and, and ministry leaders who are well equipped to do this, right? To enter into the multi-ethnic world, and you talk a lot about church planting in your book. You know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that you know, you mentioned the word bicultural in your book and, uh, you know, Asian Americans, you know, were inherently bicultural, uh, but help us understand that term and then help us to understand, you know, the benefits of being bicultural in ministry. How does being an Asian American church leader help reach the multi-ethnic, you know, uh, demographic that is a country? I know when I was growing up and I still hear the stories on social media about how, Asian Americans, particularly those that grow up in a traditional Asian home, that they feel like they don't belong, that in in their schools or in their young adult life, they're not American enough to be considered American. And then in their Asian context, or if they go back to visit China or Taiwan or Korea, they don't feel like they're Asian enough. But um, there's examples in the Bible and I'm also beginning to realize um, since I wrote the book that being Asian American is actually an asset, that having the skill, the lived experience of being able to navigate between two cultures, it's actually valuable. So one of the quotes I like to say is being Asian American is not less than, you're not second class, you're actually more than, you actually have more to offer both the Asian and American contexts. Now, the in the Black culture, they have a cool word like code switching, 
Uh, we, we don't have that, but so bicultural is kind of my attempt at bringing a highlight to say we are valuable. God's given us that special DNA experientially, not necessarily genetically, and we would uh, do well to value that and use that for kingdom purposes. And so when it comes to the multi-Asian church, it gives us the opportunity to, one, navigate between different circles. So whether that's translating languages, it's also translating cultures. And as we're learning in America here in a racially tense environment, I think uh, us as Asian Americans, we have the skills and the value for harmony that we can actually lower the tension of polarization and help people come together around relationship and come around food and build understanding and, and help us to um, really build unity in, in our community. And that's just one of uh, several values that I think we have in being bicultural that we can offer in the community and the kingdom of God. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because as you're talking about that, just how we kind of can sit in this intersection of multiple cultures, I have found in, in my own experience that the way that I interact with some of my peers who are from Chinese American and Asian American backgrounds in ministry, uh, it's different than the way that I interact with, you know, my, my brothers and sisters who are not from that background. And, I'm, and not only that, but I, I realized that as I've gotten older and maybe understood my own identity a bit more, that my, the way that I was consciously aware of how I interacted with them changed as I, I got older. I think I was more self-conscious about, oh, I'm, I'm really different rather than maybe now as I've gotten older, seeing it as just almost as a useful skill mm -hmm. in navigating yeah. some of these relational tensions. That's right. And it is so different because you can say the same sentence to two different groups of people, and it's going to be completely interpreted differently between mm -hmm. those two groups. And mm -hmm. I guess I'm I'm curious, like just in your own interaction in, in a lot of different networks, a lot of different conversations and relationships, how have you seen that same, I guess, switch for lack of a better word happen in, in your own experience? There's one that comes to mind, but I don't want to get into it because it's been in the news and it, it kind of brings up some source, source spots for people. But um, th there are many places where Caucasians and Asians don't understand each other. And uh, it's happened in our evangelical world. So there was a open letter that was crafted by a dozen Asian American Christian leaders calling out, now that calling out is such a common thing, um, calling out the white evangelical church for its racial insensitivities when it came to writing curriculums and publishing books and even running uh, conferences and events. And so uh, I've happened to have opportunity there to navigate some of those relationships to bring understanding rather than making it worse. And I do it relationally back channel, but I also know others prefer to do it prophetically and out in the open. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I, um, I'm, I'm speaking about it a little bit in a veiled fashion, but you can see, um, I hope your listeners can hear uh, how difficult and sensitive it is when one group of people don't understand why the other group of people is so sensitive about racial stereotypes.
But in hindsight, I'm saying to myself, isn't it better to be sensitive rather than insensitive? I mean, since when did insensitivity become a virtue? <laughs> and for people of color, we're more sensitive about who we are in the context we're in, and we're, we have more relational ties than uh, dominant white culture. And so that's where it shows up the most, I, I would say, where the navigating across cultures is, is very needed. Yeah. And I don't know if it's necessarily that we're more sensitive or, or maybe the fact that we are constantly living in that tension, whereas majority culture doesn't live in that same kind of tension. And so they, it's just a, it's a completely different experience. So we, you know, I think both Jalen and I, we appreciate that you shared from your experience without needing to go into the details because we understand that that's not always an easy conversation to have in just a few minutes, but we appreciate, yeah, we appreciate you sharing that. Well, because I have friends on both sides Yeah, and it's easy, especially when you say things in a very succinct manner, it's, it's more easy to be misunderstood. And I know we're in a podcasting format and there's no time limit, but I also want to make sure Jalen gets his beauty sleep and not keep them up. Past midnight. I appreciate so. that DJ. Thank you. <laughs> you know, as uh, I, I really appreciate the, you know, that sentiment that, um, you know, being bicultural, you know, it, it is, as you say, more than, because I think a lot of times for us as Asian Americans growing up, we do feel like second class citizens, right? We do feel like we lack in the Asian context or in the American context, right? And depending on, you know, which, uh, which kind of, you know, group we're in, we, we feel like we have to shift, we have to change. And uh, it doesn't allow us to embrace who God has made us. And so I really appreciate you sharing that idea of being bicultural, of being able to understand how to, you know, code switch and, and how to use all that God has, has given to us and, and, and made us for his kingdom and for his glory. Yeah. And uh, actually, uh, many of your listeners are in the ethnic Chinese church. And you actually have the perfect laboratory to learn how to be bicultural because you're dealing with the older first generation Chinese worldview and mindset um, people. And then you're also dealing with the children who are growing up in an American environment. So for you in the pastoral role, you're probably in the place where you have to most actively use those bicultural gifts. And so those that succeed and are able to have a longer tenure in the uh, Chinese church as an English minister uh, really have to have this skill well-developed because it, it, it's, it's, it's a gift and it's a skill. And some people aren't able to develop that. And you know, the attrition rate is also pretty high. So this is a very valuable thing and uh, it needs to be affirmed rather than diminished. And I hope that your listeners and perhaps some of the first-gen listeners will value that more rather than saying, why aren't you more Chinese? I think one of the things that we've tried to do with our podcast is uh, to have these Asian American leaders and pastors have these sort of conversations. And we've had, you know, the privilege of having some older Asian American leaders uh, on our podcast. But uh, how would you encourage or how have you seen Asian American leaders develop the next generation Asian American church leaders, you know, as you've you know, been in ministry for a while now, connected with a lot of different ministries and ministry leaders. What are some helpful ways that older Asian American leaders can 
disciple and mentor and lead the, the next generation of Asian American leaders? I think we're still early in learning how to do that because we didn't learn how to do that. And so the programs and the books that talk about mentoring and leadership development that are published and authored mostly by white pastors don't quite connect and resonate for who we are being the bicultural people and having to deal with a more complicated uh, context. So uh, I think for where I've seen Asian American younger leaders feel like they've been developed and affirmed has been through more of a relational mentoring. So what that looks like practically is meeting up on a weekly or bi-weekly basis uh, over breakfast or lunch uh, to talk about life and to also talk about discipleship. And then for uh, those in the church context, then it looks like internship opportunities or, or ministry leadership opportunities. So leadership isn't just content. It's also competence that has to be, the young leader has to be given an opportunity to lead and to serve. And so churches uh, would do well to open up those volunteer real responsibilities where they get to make mistakes and also get to lead and make decisions. And that's how they're going to learn leadership with the, with the oversight and the support of someone who's walking alongside of them. So in, in the book, I share a very simple diagram that um, you, uh, leadership development can be as simple as here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. So let's say you're preparing a Sunday school lesson. Do, do you have Sunday schools at your churches? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. Not, not for everyone necessarily, uh -huh. but different programs we do have. Yeah. So that's kind of a thing of the past, but I know some churches still have it, <laughs> but Christian education is certainly an important part of our spiritual formation. So let's say John, you do a Sunday school and you bring along the uh, next young leader that you want to be developing and pouring into, then you help, you bring him up him or her along and show them how you prepare for the lesson and how you do the lesson. And after um, your, your mentee has seen you do it, then the both of you do it together. And then after both of you do it together, then you let uh, him or her do it while you're standing alongside supporting him or her. And then the fourth stage would be uh, they're given the opportunity to uh, prepare and lead the class. And so that gives you a four-step handoff on how to, you know, hands-on develop a leader. And the, as you give them more experience, then you can give them affirming feedback and guidance on where their gifts are shining and where they can be um, leading and serving in the church and in the kingdom of God. Yeah. You know, uh, just a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, as I was rereading your book, um, I, I came across what you just shared and you had it in a very like neat little chart. Of, <laughs> like, I think it was, I do, you watch, we talk, um, you know, I do, or I've got it here. Do you want me to read? Do you want me to just read it? Yeah. Just read it out loud. Yeah. Yes, please save me Jalen. So you say, I do, you watch, we talk. I do, you help, we talk. You do, I help, we talk. You do, I watch, we talk you do someone else watches mm -hmm. yeah there it is and i want to give credit to the person that came up with that that was daniel m a korean american pastor who worked at lifeway for a number of years and just a year ago he took on a new position up in canada i want to say edmonton 
Edmonton, if I'm not mistaken, and he became a senior pastor of the older church that used to be mostly white. And so that was such a powerful example of how an older congregation would bless and hand off leadership to a younger congregation so that the church would have a future. The typical life cycle of a church is 60 years. And so if the church doesn't do something significant in raising up new leaders, then it's going to be plateauing and declining. And that, that has to be create some sense of urgency at raising up new leaders. And I know that's challenging for typical Asian culture because there's such a reverence for the elders and, and people who deserve respect. But in, in our church context, we also need to be responsible for the future that we're creating for the church. It's, it's, it's one of those things that we need to do both and so that um, not just preserving the tradition, preserve the doctrines, but we also have to push forward so that we create a new future so that uh, people can be walking with the Lord uh, for generations to come. Yeah, and I, I appreciate what you wrote there because I know that it, for me, it gave a framework for things that we've done for many years now in ministry, right? In youth ministry, those same steps, right? Uh, now in, in the context of worship ministry that I'm doing mm. at my church in leading worship with uh, another younger worship leader and, and passing things off to them kind of one step at a time, but not just saying from, from day one, hey, you need to figure all this out right away. But I, I feel like we don't see that nearly as much in pastoral leadership in the church. Like oftentimes churches, especially ethnic churches, expect on day one for a, a, a new pastor or someone they just hired straight out of seminary to have everything figured out right away. And rather than coming alongside them and, and bringing them along and, and passing leadership on along, whether it's with a new hire or even people from within as they mm -hmm. raise up new leaders. So mm -hmm. I, I definitely think that's something that we need to, to find ways to apply more in the context of the first generation uh, ethnic church. Yeah. And so in the absence of that, what we can do is we can be providing mentoring peer to peer. And so I love what you're doing here at Bamboo Pastors Podcast uh, so that we can journey together and learn together because it's not being served to us in a class, in a course, um, and, and it's just not available. So we're not going to hold that against God. We're not going to hold that against the old generation. We're saying, hey, what has God given us that we can do something with? And you took a leap of faith to start this podcast. And I'm so proud of you because it's something that I've been looking for because uh, from my vantage point, I'm like, who am I to be writing a book and to be promoting next gen churches when I'm not a pastor, but no one's doing it and, and it needs to be done. So I, I took a leap of faith and said, well, let's, let's just do it and see what God does and look where, where we are in 2021. And I think um, we don't need to wait for the publishers to publish our books. We don't need to wait to uh, have someone create the resources that we can learn. Hey, let's share what we learn together. Let's use uh, the wisdom of the crowd. And I think God can use our two fishes and five loaves. You know, and, and as you're saying, you know, one of the one of the ways that we're trying to do that through this podcast is to amplify the voices of Asian American church leaders. For you personally, having connected with so many ministry leaders, what are some exciting ways that you've seen Asian American church leaders using their voice to impact the world and you know impact Christianity in our in our in our global society now? Yeah, in the past few years, it's been tremendous. Um, I've been blogging online for since uh, the year 2000. 
Okay, so just as the internet was becoming mainstream pre-iPhone, I was practicing using my voice because God spoke the world into creation. And I think when we use our voices, whether through writing or literally through podcasting or videos, then God can do something with that as we're speaking the words of life. And uh, actually, that's why I wrote a book, even though I've been blogging the same ideas. I, I realized one day that it's not reaching the people that don't read blogs and don't listen to podcasts, that some people prefer the book format to really digest an idea. So that's why I took the extra time to create it in a book format and to open some new doors. And that's good. I'm glad to help in any way I can. But in terms of Asian American church leaders, they're finally be beginning to get recognized in mainstream evangelicalism. So there are Asian faces that are showing up in the conferences. And I don't count Francis Chan because he's just, he has a different call in a mainstream ministry. But the other Asian Americans that have ethnic Asian church experience and understand the complexities of our tribe, they're getting open doors and opportunities and platforms to share uh, from their perspective about what faith looks like to be a Chinese American, Taiwanese American, Korean American. So uh, five or six, I, I, I could have pulled together the list, but five or six prominent evangelical organizations have Asian Americans as their president or CEO now. That, that's incredible in the, in the span of the past five years. So I can think of Tom Lin, who's the president of InterVarsity. I actually got to work with him at the L Squared Foundation when we first launched it. So he's come such a long way. And I'll put a plug out for InterVarsity, one of the best multi-ethnic Christian organizations out there because they've really worked hard at it for 20 years. Eugene Cho, president of Bread for the World, is, I think is the name of it in Washington, DC. He planted a um, multi-ethnic church up in Seattle called Quest, uh, almost 20 years old and, and doing well up there. Julius Kim, the Gospel Coalition, the president is Korean American. Walter Kim, the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, is Asian American. And there's a couple more. I'll mention Josh Kwan. He's the president of The Gathering, which is a network and a conference for high net worth Christians cultivating their generosity. And that kind of ties into the philanthropy work that I used to do. And that's just a fascinating place where uh, Christians can be so generous to fund kingdom ventures. And that is led by a Korean American now. Wow, that's incredible. Because I think a lot of these names I've heard in passing or in you know different contexts, but to just hear them all together gives me a, uh, a better picture of, of what God is doing among um, the Asian American church community. And I, and I know even in that list, that represents really just a few Asian American, you know, subgroups, right? Chinese, Korean um, context. And, and there's a lot of other ones too. And, and I know that God is doing some incredible things through, you know, different ethnic churches besides just the Chinese and Korean church, but we, we hardly ever hear about them. And, and so I, you know, appreciate you just raising awareness on that to share about that in your book and, and coming on our podcast. As we wrap up our time together, we always ask this question, try to end with this for every single one of our guests, but um, do you have any encouragement or advice that you would give to somebody that is serving in Chinese church context or Asian American church context? Well, to the Chinese church, um, because that's such a unique context, 
uh, make, make sure you don't do it alone. And I'm so glad that we have the tools now that we don't have to do it alone. Because I know when I was in the Chinese church, I, I was swimming and sinking. <laughs> but now because of social media, it's, it's so much easier to stay connected with someone else so that you don't have to be doing it alone. And that's one of the biggest challenges of pastoral ministry in particular, that uh, it's a lonely place. It's an overloaded kind of work. It's very stressful. And during this COVID um, pandemic, we're, we're all under extra stress and pastors are under even more stress. And I'm concerned that pastors have an opportunity for self-care uh, as well as peer support. And I think that's the most valuable thing that we can do to not just survive, and, but also to have a chance at thriving. And secondly, the, um, well, you, you asked for one piece of advice, but I'm going to throw, throw one in as a bonus. Please. <laughs> That's okay. As you're in that work of pastoral ministry, uh, speak into the lives of the next generation and uh, help them discover their God-given calling. I know for me, I didn't discover mine till I was into my 40s and 50s, uh, just because mine seemed to be a bit more unusual. It's kind of a one of a kind. So it was hard to just find something that I could match, like a concentration game. It was like, oh, I should just be an engineer. Oh, oh, I should be a itinerant preacher. You know, it wasn't something that existed. I could just match and go with. And in one sense, all of us have a unique fingerprint. All of us has a, have a very unique calling in one sense, but some, many of them um, can be grouped together. So as you get to know the sheep that you're pastoring, if you're able to help them discover their calling earlier, then they can focus their energy towards really developing that and allowing that to flourish earlier in life and later. And that will save them a lot of heartache and it'll bring you a lot of joy. It's a good word. Thanks for sharing that, DJ. Uh, just a couple plugs. Thank you, DJ, for for joining us. And you know, for our listeners, again, as we said earlier, DJ is a co-host of the podcast Erasing Shame, so you can check him out over there. You know, we talked a lot about your book, MultiAsian.Church, and so we'll plug that. Um, and you can, you're still, are you still blogging? Yes. Okay. So uh, if you're interested in that, you can always check out uh, his blog at djchuang.com. But DJ, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure for us and really appreciate your insight and your thoughts. So thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jalen. Great to be here. That's the end of our episode. Thanks for joining us today on the Bamboo Pastors podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the pod on whatever platform you listen to us on. Rate and review us and check in every week as we explore the joys and challenges of ministry in the Chinese church. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bamboo Pastors. See you next time.